I am delighted. I'm in the bowels of the Royal Court doing an interview for my podcast. Um, the Royal Court had the most amazing history, and it's it's a, an interview in itself. Just this iconic building. But when I first got involved, it was quite du- dubious at the time. It was we did panto here. There was all sorts of problems. There was no heating. There was all sorts of problems. This company came in, turned it around, and now it's iconic and it's changed the face of Liverpool. And what is beautiful about the Royal Court is every theatre has its own niche. Nobody clashes at all, and that's brilliant. So we've got the Everyman, we've got the Playhouse, we've got the Empire, we've got Hope Street, we've got all these lovely theatres and the Royal Court. And with Ian, Ian is, to me, one of the pillars that runs this theatre because people don't understand what is going on behind the scenes. But to turn it around and to finish this interview, we'll talk about the iconic visit to London, which I am so, so excited about. But I'm here at the Royal Court within. How was that for an introduction? That's it's not bad at all, that Pete. Not bad at all. I mean, describing this as the bowels of the building, we've cleaned it up a little bit, but um yeah. <laughs> I've, I've been called a pillock before, but not a pillar. But yes, yeah, no, a very, very nice warm introduction. Thank you, Pete. What is your job? Uh, I am head of marketing here at the Royal Court. Um, now, I was involved, I was here when we first walked through the door, but then there were only, I want to say, seven or eight full-time staff and maybe another 25 part-time staff. Um, and now we are, uh, um, I think it's about 50 or 60 full-time and 150-plus part-time staff. So my role when we walked in, I was the marketing guy. Uh, now I'm head of marketing because I've floated my way up as more and more people have come into the organisation. Now tell me, why has it turned around? Have you found the market that you've got by accident or has it been planned? I don't know. I think when we first when we first came into the building, we were Rawhide Comedy Club, which had been going for years. Um, my boss, Kevin Fearon, who's the exec producer there, uh, and Gillian Miller, chief exec here, used to run Rawhide from the mid-90s in various different bars and venues around the city. Now, let me stop you there. Just let mention two of the compares. Uh, well, when I started, uh, the two compares were Johnny Vegas and Peter Kay, well, <laughs> alternate weeks. Uh, Terry Titter was compare for a, a long, long time. Um, yeah, we've had some... Peter Kay. Attacks. Peter That's a good name drop. It's not, not bad, it's not bad. <laughs> but um, it was, there's been some absolutely wild comedy nights. And it is funny because uh, a lot of circuit comics obviously then go on to be, you know, great, great big hits and great big artists. So... I'd always get stick off my friends, more my mates would be going, stick the telly on and uh, Jimmy Carr would be on or Daro Breen or uh, Andy Parsons and they go, you know him, don't you? It's like, well, yeah, all right. But, you know, they played our club and then moved their way up. John Bishop, of course, uh, went came through Rawhide. Um, he was a funny one because, as you know, Peter, usually you do your open spot, your unpaid spot, and then if you're good then maybe you might do another unpaid. And then if you're really good, you might get the middle spot. And then you might work your way to opening and then you might work your way to closing. John did his open spot. uh, And I think his next gig was about three months later where he was opening the show. And two months after that, he was closing the show. He just, he's one of the most naturally talented comedians I've ever seen. 
Yeah, let's leave the roll call for a minute. Let's see your take on this. Why do you think the comics have become rock stars, as in they do stadiums? Because I have never been able to work that out. I don't know. It's absolutely wild the way it's happened. And I don't know if it's because people have started through TV, that you get to see the specials, don't you? And you get to buy the DVDs of your favourite comedian. So people get used to watching it in that environment because I think comedy is at its best when it's in a little sweaty room with 150 people in. And you're right on top of the stage. Because I I don't enjoy watching comedians in arenas. I mean, there are some... I I, I watch Peter Kay's arena tour and he, he built that tour for an arena. Do you know what I mean? Spectacular. A lot of the time, you'll go and you'll watch it and it just feels like you're watching a DVD on your couch because the comedian themselves are just this tiny little dot on the stage, you know, 200 yards away. And when they say, uh, when they pick someone out in the front row and go, oh, that's an ugly shirt you've got on there, you're, you're miles away. You can't see the shirt. You can't see if he's wearing a shirt. You can't see what he's talking about. Whereas when you see them, when you see any any live act, and there's so many great comedians out there, circuit comedians... But being in a little room right on top of them, you feel like you're part of it. You feel like you're friends with them as, as the gig's going on. Um, but, yeah, someone really surprised me. I, I, was, um, I saw Paul Smith, um, who's uh, one of the Hot Water comics, and he sells out the arena over and over again. And he sells out arenas up and down the country now. And he's never done telly. It's all just hard work he's put in, doing gig after gig after gig after gig. And then suddenly... He's a sensation. You know, he's, he's one of these, you know, 10-year overnight sensations. It is interesting because years ago when you were a little boy and I ran cabaret clubs, we'd have names like the Grumbleweed, uh, Cannon uh, Ball, and they were big names without telly and filled the places. And so in a different style. That's it because it, it is that sort of... And, and it's how it used to work in that they might play, they might play circuit clubs for 10 years. And then they go, oh, actually, we'll stick you on at the Empire. Or we'll stick you on a mixed bill at the Empire. And all the people who've seen them on the circuit clubs and had a good night go, oh, well, do you know what? We'll all buy tickets for that date. So it is, it's it's having that build build. But I think the arena stuff really comes, because you see it all the time on uh, Netflix and on uh, Comedy Channel and all of this. Um, things like Live at the Apollo. All of these things are easy to access through your TV now. So, whereas previously a good circuit comic mm. might perform in front of a 200 people a, a, a weekend for, for a year, now if they end up on Live at the Apollo, they're going out to two and a half million straight away. So, it's interesting you say, I'm talking to Ian from the Royal Court. We just uh, diversified then over comedy. Uh, and I agree with you entirely, by the way. Uh, I like a room like this or a small room or a theatre, but certainly not. You know, whatever. When did the Christmases started happening? Because what people don't understand is in theatre, Christmas is one of the most important times, one, to get financing uh, to keep you through the bad months, which people don't realise. And most theatres, panto is so important. You went down a different road and have now got the most unbelievable niche yeah, um, I, one of the first years, first year we started producing theatre here, we, we produced a play in 2006 and then we started producing properly middle of 2007. 
And the first Christmas show that we put on was uh, Night Collar, which was... Uh, the taxi driver. Taxi driver. And it's a taxi driver driving through the night and various people are in and out of the cab. And it's very funny. It's it's nominally set at Christmas. You know, there's a bit of snow on the set, but, you know, it, it can be staged any time of the year. Um, and we put that on because we looked around at what else was available. And what was available then was you had the, the rock and roll panto at the Everyman for, for the kids. You had a big panto at the Empire. You had a panto at the Epstein. So the kids were really well served. And we thought, well, to be honest, what, 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 why don't we do something for the grown-ups? Leave your kids at home, come in, have a pint and, and watch something that will make you laugh. Um, and it went really well. And so the next year we produced a play called Merry Ding Dong, which was by Fred Lawless. Um, and again, aimed squarely at leave the kids at home, don't bring them in here. This is for you. This is for the grown-ups so you can enjoy yourself. Uh, and it sort of escalated from there because the Christmas show, you can have a lot of fun with. You can have a lot of fun. You've got loads of silly jokes, you know, loads of big musical numbers because that's essentially what panto is for the kids. So do it for the grown-ups. But you can make ruder jokes and, you know, you can... And everyone's had a drink and it's, you know, it can get funnier and funnier and funnier. Uh, and each year we did a Christmas show and we, we went through various Scouse puns, you know, Pharaoh Cross the Mersey, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to Fazakali, um, Nightmare on Lime Street, uh, all of these. And they built and built until we took a big step with uh, the Scouse Nativity, which is one we did about six or seven years ago. Um, but what we found with that audience is they're incredibly loyal. We found that what they want to know is, are they going to have a laugh? And the answer is simply yes. If you come to the Christmas show, you're going to have a laugh with your mates. Uh, and so that means that they'll book their tickets for next year and the year after. And now we've reached the point where we put the Christmas show on sale in March. And over the course of the first weekend, we'll sell fifteen to 20,000 tickets on, on the first, first few days it's on sale. Now, if you take me back to when we first walked into the building... If you told me a Christmas show was going to sell 20,000 tickets across the whole run, I'd be over the moon. But uh, we've reached a point where the audience know know what they're expecting. We know how to provide it. We know everybody wants a good old laugh, and that's what we do. And it works. Where did the idea come from of the dining? Because, of course, once again, when you were a little boy, I was running nightclubs and you went in for dinner. You had cabaret and then you'd have your sweets and your cheese and biscuits. You have then brought it back. And to me, I wouldn't come to the Royal Court if I couldn't have dinner because I, it, to me, it's a way of life. How did that start? Again, that came from when we were a comedy club because uh, the various venues we were in, we were in uh, Baby Blue, we were in uh, Life Cafe, you know, the old Lyceum building at Bottom Bold Street. And we did dinner before the show there. Uh, and the thinking of it is, because with comedy particularly, uh, it's it's quite subjective. So you might like one comic, your mate might like another one, your wife might like another one. So the idea was, if you can come out for dinner with your friends, you have a couple of drinks, and then the show starts, if you enjoy the show, you've had a fantastic night. If you don't enjoy the show, you've still had a good night because you've had dinner and drinks with your friends and you've done all your chatting. So when we moved into the Royal Court, we set the room up, we put kitchens in and we set the room up ready for, um, for pre-comedy dining. And then when we produced our first play, we said, well, should we sell them some dinners as well? And we did. And, and, and the, first, uh, the first show we did, which was Brick Up the Mersey Tunnels, I was watching how the tickets sold. And in the stalls downstairs, you could eat. And in the circle, it's normal road seats. And the first show, it sold about 50-50. 
you know, half the people would want to, to sit downstairs, the other half would look at it and go, dinner in a theatre, don't know, and they'd sit upstairs. And then you'd see them looking down and going, look at those guys having having steak and chips and, and, and two pints and a bottle of wine. The next show, it was all about getting the tickets in the stalls downstairs and it, it just rolled from there and now they're the hottest ticket. I've got to tell you, if you've never been to the Royal Court, everybody listening, and you ever visit Liverpool, you must come and you must book in advance. But what is great is you have dinner at 7 o'clock, the bars close at 8 and then open in the interval. So they are respectful for the show and it works. And then in the interval, you have your cheese and biscuits or your pudding. I love the night. And then you go next door uh, and meet the cast. So what a great way to finish. Why did you buy next door? Well, when we moved in... Next Which was the Penny Farthing. I was going to say, next door was a pub called the Penny Farthing. Now, Famous. I'm, I'm sure that a lot of your listeners know the Penny Farthing. Um, when I try and describe it, I say it's the kind of place where they search you for weapons on the way in, and if you haven't got any, they give you one. You know, it was that kind of bar. Um, but the Penny... Uh, we, we were serving our audience quite well in here. People were coming in for a, a night at the theatre. Um, they want drinks, dinner. They want to be well looked after. And so we had an eye on the Penny Farthing site for a little while. Then things came together with the council and the shopping centre that own it, and um, suddenly they were looking for a new tenant for it. So we were able to come in, uh, and when we moved in, we refurbished the whole place. We ripped it all out and started again, and we built it up as a, a place called Courtyard. And now you can get pre-show dining in there. As So if you haven't managed to... Uh, getting quick enough to get the, the, the seats inside the theatre. You can have pre-show dining next door. And then um, after the show, we encourage the audience to go into Courtyard and have a drink. And as you said, a part of it is going to meet the cast after. I've got to uh, mention it. When it first opened, didn't you get people from the Penny Father coming in with vouchers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had people from the Penny walking in, uh, the old the old Penny Father and clientele. And a lot of them would walk five yards in, look around all the... Because we'd done it, you know, nicely Beautiful. paint job, yards, all the chrome. It's all, outside, everything. Oh, yeah, 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 lovely little terrace and all of this. And you'd see the, the light go on in their eyes and go, this this isn't the place that I thought it was. And they'd go out again. But, yeah, we did have them walking in and saying, uh, you know, the usual, please. Uh, and they're going, what? Like, you know, half a mile and a pickled egg. It's like, nah, no, not really our kind of place. But... Um, but yeah, it, it's 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 moved on a little bit since then. Now, recently, some very exciting plans have been put forward. What's this all about? Yeah, well, over the course since we've had this building, I think we've already spent just over ten million quid on refurbing it, and the way we've done it is in pieces. So the first thing we did was refurbish the auditorium, um, and that was through there was heritage lottery money involved in that. Um, then we got um, a couple of years later, we were able to refurbish the the foyer, build the new cafe, the new box office, um, and, and sort of sort of build it piece by piece like that. The last bit of refurbishment that we always talked about was connecting the royal court to the penny farthing next door to the courtyard next door, um, and do something exciting with that site. Uh, and the opportunity came up through a couple of conversations with um, Lady Anne Dodd. Um, to build uh, a happiness centre, uh, which will be a uh, the Ken Dodd Happiness Centre. It will have a dedicated Ken Dodd Museum within it, 
Um, there'll be workshop spaces for our friends at the Comedy Trust do loads of amazing work with uh, using comedy to help with mental health and um, all of that sort of thing, happiness and well-being. Uh, that'll be based in there. There will be another restaurant in there because, you know, we need it. We need the, the, the space to serve people before the theatre. Um, and there'll be lots of lots of history of Liverpool comedians because Liverpool is a funny city. You know, if you if you ask anyone from around the country, one of the things that defines Liverpool and people from Liverpool is a sense of humour. And it's crazy that we don't have a building in this city dedicated to that. Um, so the plans are in with the council now. We're we're hoping that if those plans get approved, we just need to raise a bit more money to get it sorted. But within a couple of years, there'll be a, a, a great big new building on that site, which then connects to the theatre, which means we've got more dressing room space, more office space. Um, so it, it's a really exciting project. It is exciting. And they've just had, as you know, a, a, an exhibition down at the museum of Ken Dodd, and I think it took people by storm. It did. It was absolutely um, blew us away because we were partially involved in um, uh, in helping them curate the... the, the the artefacts, because uh, so Ken Dodd's got a very long history with the Royal Court. Uh, he used to perform here in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, during the 1970s, when the building was in financial trouble, it was Sir Ken Dodd who kept it going, because he'd come and he'd do four weeks in the in the spring, and then, as you said before, the panto would be on at Christmas. So if you get four weeks of Ken Dodd in the spring and a good panto at Christmas, that can hold a year together for a theatre. Uh, and the time and effort he dedicated to keeping this place open when it needed it. Uh, if he hadn't have done that, this could easily have just been part of the car park now. You know, this theatre wouldn't have been here. Now, when I was younger, they used to have theatres with repertory companies in, using the same old, same old, same actors over and over again. You do it. What is the logic behind that? Well, we, we kind of... We found a, a group of, of actors, Liverpool actors, and a big part of our driver here is we want Liverpool lives on stage. And we think that Liverpool as a city has got some of the most talented actors, directors, designers, carpenters, front of house staff, kitchen staff. So you don't need to go rushing around and saying, oh, well, we want to, uh, we need to find a big star name or bring up this guy from London or bring this guy in from Manchester. So when we first produced something like Brick Up the Mersey Tunnels, um, the cast from that, there were certain people within that cast who, who you think, well, they're, they're really good, so let's let's put them in the next one, and let's put them in the next one. And we still have... We, what, we, what we've been doing in the last five years uh, or more is we want to introduce new cast members, so we, we always try and have one or two in each cast who are either making their debut or, you know, have only been in a couple with us. Um, but when it comes to the Christmas show, you will see a lot of the uh, a lot of the familiar faces, because the audience connect with them, uh, and the audience feel like they're their best mates. And uh, I think if you ask some of the regular Christmas cast, people like Lindsay, people like Drew Schofield, um, you know, you'll see um, that they get stopped in the street, and they're always asked about, you know, uh, what's going on at the Royal Court, or how do I get this on at the Royal Court. It, they are the public face of what we do, and uh, I, I think there is that sort of that that family feel and that that friendship feel that stretches from us to the audience. Now, you've had uh, a few things you've put on. We won't mention what they are, but a few things that haven't worked. Was that trying different levels? Yeah, you, you've got to take risks, otherwise, what you're doing, we may as well be running a McDonald's if we're not going to try and 
push the audience a little bit. I think what is funny though is is last year we produced our one hundredth show, the um, A Song for Europe, our Eurovision production was our hundredth production, and it it made us sort of reflect and look back on what we've done over the last sixteen, seventeen years. Um, and you look at some of the shows that we produced early on, and you think, I don't think the audience would enjoy those now. They they enjoyed them at the time, but I don't think they'd enjoy them now because the audience expect a little bit more now rather than just wham, bam, is a load of jokes and out you get. Um, there's just a little bit more, you know, a little bit of... They, they want to cry as well as laugh. They want to to learn something. They want something a little bit, little bit deeper. Um, now, don't get me wrong, we're not going to be running off and putting, you know, Bertolt Brecht on anytime soon, but... Um, Every year, every year we'd we'd have a we'd roll the dice on a show, yeah, and we go all right. But I don't know if people knew, but up until uh, twenty eighteen, we weren't funded in any way, so we had to make the money at box office in order to stay open. So we were rolling the dice on shows, knowing that if they didn't sell well, then you know we'd be in trouble. Because when we first started out, we always thought, okay, you can get away with one bad one. If you have two bad ones, everyone goes home. And there was a lot of pressure on on the organisation back then, on the bosses, and you know, to to make sure that we were filling the seats and make sure that we were keeping the venue going. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't take risks because so how you develop. I've been in, as you know, I come all the time to the show, so I've seen the risk taking shows. What frustrates me is. The audience, which, by the way, the Royal Court have educated so many people to go into theatre who would never have come to theatre. But now the education has to change because of hecklers, because of people laughing in a serious play. And it is part of education, isn't it? It is. And the first the first serious one we did was a version of Stephen King's Misery, um, where Drew Schofield and it was Joan Kempson who at the time had just come out of Coronation Street, I think. Um, but Drew was fantastic in it. But up until that point, we'd only done comedies. And the show opens. And even though it's Stephen King's misery, you know what I mean? It's, it's a really tense show. People were giggling all the way through the first five, ten minutes because they were waiting for the gags. And then they realised there weren't gags coming. And I think they enjoyed it because it was... I mean, I think it's one of the best shows we've ever done here. Um, but... It, the comedies are the ones that sell all the tickets because uh, people want to come and forget the worries and come and have a laugh. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think what you said about the, the audience um, not being educated, but having doors open to them. Because way back at the start, we'd get people saying lovely things like, I don't go to the theatre, but I do go to the Royal Court. We, we ran some numbers on people who'd been to other venues and it was 73% of the Royal Court audience didn't go to any other theatres. That was back 2007, 2008. Now, the Royal Court audience go to all sorts of other theatres. We're a gateway drug for theatre. You know, people come in. And for a long, long time, my, my friends, when I said to my friends, do you want to come and see a show at the theatre? They go, oh, do I have to wear a tie? You know, do I have to put my proper shoes on? And you go, no, come in, relax, enjoy. And... That was a big, big deal for us. People think, I'm I'm not allowed to go to the theatre. That's not a place for me. And we've done a huge amount of work in making sure that we say to people, come and enjoy yourself, come and have a laugh, come and sit with your mates, it's fine. You know, this is what we do. Um, and by doing that, the audience has built and built, partially because 
they trust us because we were a comedy club, partially because they trust us because of the shows they've seen, partially because they trust the building, because for 25 years before we took it on, it was a gig venue. So everyone remembers being here to see the Beastie Boys or Bowie or U2 or whoever. So we built on that trust and that, that got the door open for people. And you know, you know what, you know what scousers are like? If you open the door a little bit, they'll push their way in yeah. and make themselves at home. And that's what they've done here. We've got a big story to tell, which I'm going to still save because I'm talking to Ian from the Royal Court. Before we do go into the big story, which has blown me away and I put in the same category as 2008 Capital Culture, let's talk about two things. One, the room we're in, uh, where I do P. Price Holes Court, and two, your lunch times that you do. And what is great about what I do and what they are up there, and also give us a flavour of what else goes on down here, is what you do with this lunchtime is people can come into town and feel safe and are not stuck in at night. Here, we finish just after 10, they can get the train home so they feel safe. Explain where we are and then tell us about the two. Yeah, at the moment we're sitting in the studio space. Now, we built this in 2018, um, and it used to be the, the, the bar for the stalls, uh, and it was a little square room with pillars in it so you could fit about 80 people in. We were kind of using it for little bits of stand-up, little bits of small music gigs. But, you know, with 80 people, as, as you know, Pete, if you're running a venue, you need more than that to keep the lights on. Um, so when we were doing the refurb, we stretched the building a little bit. We pushed into another room next door and we've now got a little studio space which seats 150. Some are around tables, uh, some are in road seats. And it gives us a chance to put shows on down here. Um, we put a lot of comedy on here. We obviously have cabaret. We have your cabaret show. We have all sorts of... New plays? Of New plays. Because we produce everything ourselves and all of what we do is new writing. Now... If you asked someone at, uh, you know, the National Theatre or the Royal Court in London or from the stage and they said, oh, well, new writing has to be experimental from writers who, you know, who are pushing the edge of this and that and the other. Everything we do is new writing because our audience wants something new. You know, they won't come back in and, you know, watch repeats or watch us trying to twist an old play into a new shape. Um, so, but... What we, ha what we usually do is the first port of call is you pick up a script and you go, will this sell 10,000 tickets? And if the answer is no, you can't produce it. And we were getting some absolutely gorgeous scripts that we couldn't produce. So now we've got this space. Now we read the script and you go, will it sell 1,000 tickets? And you go, do you know what? It will. So let's put it on down here for a week and a half. Let's put it on down here for two weeks. Um, and part of the... Part of the new writing conversation and the new plays conversation led us to set up something called Stage Write, which is a free writing course um, that we've offered now for the last six years. Um, and we've had now, uh, I think it's about 70 or 80 new writers come through that course, all of whom finish with a script that they've written. Um, we're trying to develop as much talent down here uh, as possible for, for the future. And we've had people who've, had plays down here who then go on to have plays upstairs. We've had people who come off the course who have plays down here and go upstairs. We've had directors come down here who then direct in the main house, designers, lighting designers. It's about having this space and using it well, knowing that we'll create resources for, uh, for the main house uh, for years to come. And I do a thing called uh, P. Price Holes Court. We don't do it often. Three acts... 
After each act, the bar opens and then closes and it's sold out every single time. It's amazing. Briefly, tell us how Upstairs happened with the lunches. Yeah, the lunch clubs. We do this thing called Variety Lunch Club. Now, again, they came about, I want to say 2010, that kind of time. Um, and we were, serving, we were serving our audience well, but what we found was there was some uh, older members of the audience who didn't like staying out late at night. Uh, and the only matinees we offered were on a Saturday. Um, and again, you're looking at it and you think, well, money's tight for people. And we decided we'd do a show called Variety Lunch Club. And when we started it, it was a fiver a ticket. And that included a bowl of scouse, a cup of tea, a singer and a comic. And we put it on. And I think I think we got about 150 people in the first one. Uh, Mickey Finn was the comedian on. I can't remember who the singer was. But it was uh, it was great. It was a hit. And so we went, well, let's do another one. Let's do another one. And so we do them. Uh, one or two a month. Uh, they're now it's now gone up to seven pound fifty. I'm afraid, Pete. And sold out. Sold out soon, every time. As soon as it goes on sale, yeah. six hundred people sold out. Bowl of scouse, cup of tea, and and a show. And it's formed its own little community. You know that there are people there, regulars who come to every single one. And they look out for each other. Sit in the same seats. Sit in the same seats and they know that, you know, oh, there's Joan on A4 and, you know, there's Susan on, yeah. on B6. And they look out for each other, you know. And, and yeah. we've had it where we have people kind of going, oh, well, uh, we've noticed that Derek's not been in for the last couple, you know, is he all right? And fair play to our box office, they'll give him a ring and say, yeah. you've not been in, how are you? Yeah. Because, again, we talk about family a lot in this building, but we feel the audience are, are a big part, huge part of what we do. Um, because... I'm, glad, I'm glad you mentioned box office because the staff are also a family. Oh yeah, everyone in this building is is they worship this place. They work here because they love it. Yeah. Not only the money, they love it. The only problem is no one leaves, Peter. No, no. no. <laughs> There's a lot of old people working here. <laughs> I'm talking to Ian at the Raw Court. Now, the crescendo. So we built up, we've had the first act, the second act, and now we've got the star. I love this place uncontrollably and with every bone in my body. But now... Oh, my word, you've gone to another level and the crescendo is even better with the capital of this country. Talk to me about Boys in the Black stuff and give me a potted history of how you've got to where you are. Well, Boys in the Black stuff, I've said this a few times, it feels like the show that we've been building up to for 20 years. Um, and for a long time, a long, long time, my, my boss, Kevin, the exec producer, has wanted to produce a stage version of Alan Bleasdale's incredible TV show, Boys in the Black Stuff. A lot of your listeners will remember it from the 1980s. If they don't, get on YouTube, get on the BBC iPlayer, get watching it. Because it is... I, I From a personal point of view, I think Alan Bleasdale is one of the greatest living writers this country's ever produced. Um, and... The way he makes people, he shows everyday life, he makes people laugh and he makes people cry in the same breath, with the same line. It's stunning. And it produced characters like Yozza Hughes, you know, Gizza Job and all of this. And we wanted to produce this. Now, I think it was about 2018, 2019 when finally, because um, Alan, Alan Bleasdale always said, said no to it because he just didn't see it. He couldn't see how it could be done on stage. Um, and we've got far too much respect for him to to sort of twist his arm or trample over him. But we finally got up to a position where there's a director, Kate Vassarberg, um, who's incredible, and she sat down with the writer, James Graham, 
Now, James Graham has got all sorts going on in the West End. He's got Dear England going on, a show called Quiz. Um, people might remember the TV show Sherwood that was on BBC last year. I believe there's a new series starting uh, in a few weeks. Um, he's the writer of that. He's a, an amazing writer. Now, we've got Kate and James and Alan in one room. And Alan and James got on like a house on fire. Because I think there's a good 40 years age difference between them. But they're the same soul. They've got the same uh, reference points. They've got the same beliefs. Uh, and so Alan finally said, OK, I, I think this guy could produce it on stage. So so did Alan write it or did they write it together? They wrote it together in that Alan had written all the original TV scripts um, and then he sat with James and James said, OK, well, I think... Because it was in five parts on TV, five-hour-long parts, and the show is about two hours plus an interval. So uh, we needed to combine the various different stories. Uh, so James did that. He said, OK, this, that and the other. And there are lines and chunks of dialogue from the TV show that people recognise. And th there are points where the audience, you can feel them waiting for a gag to come that they know is coming. Um, and then it's the... By the way, we are in live theatre. If you hear any noises, the fridges are being moved around, they're setting up for tonight. But that's how the podcasts work. Go on. There's no quiet space in the Royal Court, I'm afraid, Pete. But yeah, so um, uh, James pulled together the bits of, of the script he wanted, and but then obviously there's parts that he had to write lines for characters to get them from one bit to another. Uh, and James has said in, in a couple of different interviews, he said the pressure to write... Uh, a piece of dialogue for Alan Bleasdale was enormous because Alan was a huge hero of his. But one of the greatest things he, he, he said is in a meeting afterwards, Alan will say, is that my line or your line? Did you write that or did oh, I? Oh, wow. And so... How flattering. That, wow. that had him on cloud nine. Yeah. Um, but bear in mind, James Graham is, is the hottest writer in, in theatre at the moment. Um, but he, you know, huge fan of Alan Bleasdale. So anyway, we had that beautiful combination two great writers, a fantastic director. And Alan Bleasdale said, if it's going to be done, it starts in Liverpool. And if it starts in Liverpool, it starts at the Royal Court. Because he's, we've produced a couple of his over the years and he loves the way we work here. Um, so to be in that position, there was a lot of pressure because every single department, whether it's the marketing guys or whether it's the tech team or the sound guys or the front of house staff, every single department was going, we do not mess this up. The whole country is going to look at this show. If we get it right... Yeah, then... also, also uh, casting, the pressure oh. on casting something like that. Oh, yeah. Without, I mean, that's a that's a podcast on its own. Oh. You know, but I... we got the cast. We did. You've got the cast. Everybody's in place. Were the tickets selling well at the beginning? Yeah, we, we put it on sale a good year before it was on, and we made a lot of fuss over it because it's boys and the black stuff. And it's funny because I, I was in a... a a meeting talking about this and it's like in Liverpool you say it's boys from the black stuff it's Alan Bleasdale and there's a whole chunk of people who go I am buying tickets for this I'm in you know whatever happens to it I'm in and then you build layers on top of that James Graham who again phenomenal writer but people in Liverpool going James Graham's doing a play in Liverpool I'm in and then you have the cast you know Barry Sloan who's playing Yozza a uh, huge name in his own right uh, and again you've got his fans going if Barry Sloan's in it, you know, I don't care who's written or what it is, I'm, I'm in. So we had a, a, a big advance for a show, which is always very, very good. You know, you know you're going to be all right, even if, the, even if the play goes badly, then you kind of go, OK. But, you know, we sold a lot of tickets so far, so we're right. And then the show opened, 
and the rest of the tickets just went. Now tell me, song. the show opened, the press night was the who's who of the national press. Were you shocked? We, we genuinely were, because usually if we have a show here, you get um, the local guys coming in and you might, you might get The Guardian might come up or uh, the stage will probably come up. You might get The Independent, you might get The Observer, you know, but one, you're not going to get all of them. Uh, two things really shocked me with the national press. One was on press night because everyone was there, The Times, The Telegraph, The Guardian, The Eye, The, uh, the Observer every single broadsheet was in because they want to see this. Daily Mail came in. They loved it. They gave it five stars. Um, but also, uh, when we were setting up interviews beforehand, what they all wanted was a two-hander with uh, Alan Bleasdale and James Graham together. Now, what usually happens is you'll have three or four papers come in and go, we want to talk to these guys. And then you have to either pick or you go, all right, we'll... We'll go with the Times, but we'll turn down the Guardian, or we'll turn. And also, if you choose the Times ahead of the Guardian, the Guardian go, Well, if you're going to do it in the Times, I'm not going to do it. We had the Times, the Stage, and the Guardian all running interviews with the same people because they were all desperate to get that interview. And that's when I realised, like, this is a big, big deal, national press wise. Um, the good thing about the reviewers coming in as well is they got to see what else we're doing here and how we work yeah. here. So to have them it's in... It's a on, bigger picture. It is. Yeah. And so they come in and see the show, and then they go, why Why'd you do the dining before the show? Where'd you get this audience from? This is incredible. Yeah. And then I'm, we're able to tell them about what we do, and then I tell them about the youth theatre, free to access, no waiting list, the community choir, completely free to access, no waiting list, the writing programme, the amateur dramatics group, all of the stuff that we do. People see what goes on on stage, but there's a whole load of stuff that people don't see that we do, and we've we fund ourselves so boys in the black stuff opened a lot of doors where did it come in and when did you know that the national theater was going to take boys in the black stuff and how does that briefly how's that happen well again because this project was it was a big project so within the industry other people were looking at it other producers were going oh, that might be interesting that might be interesting um and the national theater were chatting to us about two or three months before it opened. But they need a lot of things to happen in, for in order to work. It needs to be incredibly high quality. It needs to be very well reviewed. It needs to be very well received from by audiences. And so when it opened and all of those things happened, and within within two or three days of it opening, you know, they were up and they were watching it and they were going, well, I've seen the great reviews it's got. We can see the audience numbers going through the roof. Um we can see, you know, the, the creatives involved. Because what we do here, we could get away with doing productions here that are not slapdash, but cheaper. You know, we could go, all right, well, let's not spend the extra on the set. Let's not get the best sound designer. Let's, let's see if we can manage with that. With all our shows here, we're determined that they're good quality. And with Boys from the Black Stuff, every single person, a lot of our regular guys, like the... The video designer, Jamie Jenkins, he started in our box office and ended up doing video design for us as part of his graphic design stuff that he does. He is now a video designer for the National Theatre in London. Uh, our, our sound designer, our lighting designer, everything, everything was tip-top. Um, so we'd, we heard the National were definitely interested in it. It was probably confirmed, confirmed just before Christmas. Uh, and then it went on sale 
at the end of January. Um, and then we get to tell the world that Liverpool's Royal Court is taking a show to the National Theatre. Which is unreal. And you brought it back for a month? Yeah, we're bringing it back. It's just shy of a month, three and a half weeks, um, because we want to run it in here uh, and then take it straight down to London. Um, it was completely sold out last time. So if you want a ticket, you need to get your ticket now. Uh, we put it on sale three weeks ago, two weeks ago. Um, already we've sold an absolute ton of tickets. Already it looks like it will be another sellout. Um, and there are so many people that I, I I bump into who just go, oh, I would have loved to have seen that, but I left it too late. So that's what we're trying to get the message out now. If you want to see this phenomenal show, then you need to get your tickets early. How long is it running at the National? Uh, it's uh, three weeks at the National. So we're doing three and a half here, then three weeks down there. Um, and then, as, as you know, Pete, if it's a big hit at the National, then the, there's always discussions about taking it further. So... Uh, you, you never know where it might end up. Ladies and gentlemen, we've just been on a potted history of one of the most fabulous theatres in Liverpool. It's an incredible story from when I first did Panto in here and the noise from underneath the st- underneath the sets with the cold coming in everything was wrong Kevin and the team took it over and changed it it's now on the world map and guess what Boys in the Black Stuff's coming back and then it goes to the National thank you so much for joining us on our podcast why not subscribe you know it's free so join us and tell your friends. It's great going on walks and doing whatever you want to do and then putting P Price on. We've got a back catalogue of over 100 interviews. Join us. Subscribe. It's free.